Acts chapter 14, uh, the remaining verses of the chapter, verses 21 through 28, is the sermon text this evening. Acts chapter 14, 21 through 28. hear God's word. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now, when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. From there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and all that uh, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And let us pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you again for your word, and we ask you that you might open it up to us in a new way through the preaching. O Holy Spirit, illumine our hearts and our minds to the true knowledge of the scriptures. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been considering the first missionary journey, and we find in these verses the conclusion to the first missionary journey as Uh, Most of you uh, know, I hope there are three missionary journeys, and uh, we'll quickly uh, begin very soon the second missionary journey, but here we conclude the first. Uh, And let me just say, uh, though ordinarily we look uh, at longer passages, I was was happily surprised at what a wonderful passage this is, verses 21 through 28. Uh, The first thing that we see is that they preached at Derby, verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city. We had just read in verse 20 that the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. Well, again, let me just notice in Acts how frequently these men made use of this method. These men were preachers. Paul and Barnabas and the apostles. Acts chapter 6, verse 4 comes to mind. Let me read that verse. In fact, we read them saying, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And as we go through Acts, that's what we always see. These men were men of prayers, prayer, and they were men uh, of preaching. And let us see the kind of preachers they were. They were preachers of the gospel. Again, this is a common refrain. They preached What? They preached the gospel to that city. It should be clear by now what that means. Luke doesn't have to tell us every time. In other words, he doesn't have to stop and say, well, here's what they preached. We should have a general sense of that by now. Uh, Always they were saying, repent and believe the good news as it is in Jesus, for there is salvation in no one else. And this was the theme and the message that they never tired of preaching. And we see that they did so in a public way. They preached to the city. They made the good news known. Remember what we've seen in Romans. The light of the gospel isn't to be put under a basket. It's to be made known. The light is to be shining. 
And uh, indeed, as Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 18, I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. How was it doing so? It was doing so through the public preaching of the apostles. They didn't preach to a few, but to many. They preached to the city, beginning, no doubt, as before at the synagogue there in Derby. But then as this generated greater interest So they preached to all who would listen. Uh, We can imagine, perhaps as uh, men had done in later days, they took to the fields and began to preach to the crowds as our Lord did. But let us see what is the result of that at Derby and made many disciples. They preached the gospel of the city there and they made many disciples. Now, once again, I indicated this last time, so I say again that I am impressed by the variety with which Luke describes the same thing. What is he describing? Well, even in trying to describe what he's describing, I could describe it variously. He's talking about, well, conversion, or he's talking about how it is that a man who's outside finds his way into the church. You see, there's so many different ways that you can describe this thing that was happening. Men were becoming Christians. They were coming into the church. In one case, he says men are baptized and and added to the church, having gladly received the word. Well, I can't think of any better way to put it. That's Acts chapter 2, verse 41. But it isn't the only way to put it. In other cases, it was not so much that people were being added as in in Jerusalem, as that new churches were being formed. Or in other cases, there is the the emphasis, as Luke uh, so often emphasizes in Acts, on the outpouring of the Spirit on new converts, which is another way of describing the same phenomenon. A Christian is someone who's born again. He's born from above. He's born of the Spirit. The Spirit has made him new. The Spirit is poured out on him. That is an essential aspect of conversion as well. So often, too, there is the simple emphasis, as we saw last time, on faith, that on hearing the message, the people believed and so were added to the church in this way. As new believers. And then there is this. Now I'm I'm consistently uh, just giving you the exact phrasing of Luke. He speaks of turning to the Lord. Or repentance being granted by God. Another way of describing conversion. Someone who turns. How did he turn? God, uh, God caused him to turn. He granted repentance. All of these are various ways of describing the same thing. Which is conversion. Which is, let us see, a supernatural work. It isn't a man deciding to be a Christian. You cannot read this account of things and conclude that. This is something that happens to a man. It happens to a man as a result of the preaching of the word or as a result of his encounter with Jesus in the scriptures uh, or something like that. And in these various descriptions, let us see. Uh, Luke's interest is not in excluding the others when he describes one aspect. It's just a matter of emphasis each time. The same thing stated differently. But here you notice it is stated uh, in a fresh way. And I don't know that he said this before. Perhaps he has. uh, That many disciples were made there. How can we describe this phenomenon? Men becoming Christians and coming into the church. These are men who were becoming Christians as a result of the, or excuse me, disciples. As a result of the preaching, disciples were made. Of course, that's exactly what our Lord told his disciples to do in the Great Commission. They were to preach the gospel and so make 
disciples. And what is a disciple after all? A disciple is a follower of Jesus. So that the thought here is people responding to the message of preaching at Derby and faith. And they turned to the Lord. They were baptized. They became full of the spirit. And they were added to the church as disciples. Now again, let me state that there are various ways of describing These are various ways, excuse me, of describing the same thing, namely conversion. But at the same time, let us also see in this that God is capable of a great deal of variety. So that on the one hand, I'm saying, well, all these various terms are really in the end describing the same thing. On the other hand, I would stress. uh, I would stress the point a little bit differently that. In the work of converting sinners. The Lord has many ways of doing so. He is capable of a great deal of variety. He doesn't convert everyone in the same exact way. And I believe to some extent Luke is highlighting this as well. We must not, as Guthrie says, William Guthrie says, limit God to one way of working. Well, he has many ways of working in the conversion of sinners And this variety is seen in the many ways Luke expresses this. And so while all this tells us of conversion, they also, these different descriptions also tell us of God's many ways of converting sinners to himself. Well, having seen the preaching at Derby, let us see next the return trip to the churches established in Lystra, Iconium and Antioch. We've seen them pass through established churches And then come back through. And let us just remember uh, that the reason or the way that they left was they were run out of town. And yet we find that they return in each case. Well, it's important to realize that these return trips uh, were a matter of policy for the apostles. They didn't just happen to do that because, after all, that was the way back home. But this is something they were always doing. They didn't visit a town and not return to that town. In other words, here was the policy. As evangelists, you don't just seek converts. That is not the ultimate aim of an evangelist. The aim of an evangelist is to establish churches. You see the difference. Of course you aim at converts, but what are you going to do with them? You're going to gather and you're going to organize them together into a church. And that's what the apostles were doing here. They were establishing churches and then they were strengthening those churches. Uh, How did they do so? Well... We read that they were seeking to strengthen them to continue in the faith. And they did that through further teaching and preaching. These were people who had been converted, but they needed to be strengthened. They were weak, but they needed to be made strong. Very often, Luke has put it this way thus far. In order to strengthen them to continue... In the faith. Well, let us see the really important thing is faith itself. And so they needed to be strengthened in it and encouraged to continue in the faith. We might think of how Paul put it elsewhere in Colossians chapter one, verse nine. I tried to imagine What were they saying as they were strengthening them 
by encouraging them to continue in the faith? What would they have said? Well, I think they would have said something like this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, did not do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all uh, for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son of his love. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, something like that. Here is the source and the strength of our faith, they were saying. Jesus Christ revealed and known by us. And so he taught them in such a way that they would know him and trust him and grow strong in believing, even as he did in the Colossian epistle or the Ephesian epistle or any of his epistles for that matter. Exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. And so do you see that it isn't an easy thing to be a Christian? That's what that's what they were saying there. That's what you find Paul saying in all of his epistles. Already, these Christians had experienced hardship and persecution. And so again, Paul tells them, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Of God. Now, in a sense, you could say that's a strange way to strengthen people, isn't it? Or to encourage them. (laughs) Get ready to suffer. And yet that's what we find them doing. Why not rather ease their pain and tell them everything's going to be okay? But that would be a lie, of course. And so as he sought to strengthen their faith, he taught them the truth as it is in Jesus. And that is a truth, let us see, that includes the cross. A Christian is someone, Paul says, and Barnabas was saying, who is going to heaven. Thank God. But that's not the only thing that's true about the Christian. He's going to heaven, but not before passing through this world and bearing his cross for Jesus. Not before suffering many tribulations. Oh, we're entering the kingdom of God, they said. The prospect is glorious, but not at first. Only... As we suffer with Christ, will we be glorified together with him? So not at first, but at last. And in reality, Paul would say elsewhere, it's but a short while, a brief passing moment, which cannot compare to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And let us see the idea of many tribulations, as it is put here, is really a far reaching idea. It may include outright persecution, as the saints there had experienced. But then again, It may not. What is included in the idea of many tribulations is all that the apostle speaks of in Romans chapter 8. The sufferings of the present time, he calls them in verse 18. All that is bound up in the present life for the Christian in a world that is subject to futility. Or again, as we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
persecution that is at the hands of those who oppose the gospel. Men like Janus and Jambres, or as he says in verse 13, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And and on he goes. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 13 and 14. Do you see why the Christian needs to be strengthened? Why he needs to be encouraged and exhorted to continue in the faith? It's because the Christian life isn't an easy thing. The Christian life, he says, consists of tribulations, many tribulations, of persecutions. It consists of sufferings. Oh, the Christian life isn't as easy as we thought it would be. Paul is speaking to new converts. But you could say this just as easily to those who have been Christians for a lifetime. I never imagined it would be this difficult. It would be so full of trouble. And yet, do you see how honest God is with his people? You must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. No, it was never meant to be easy. And yet, at the same time, you see, I'm saying the Christian life isn't easy. It wasn't meant to be easy. It was meant to be difficult. And yet, at the same time, if we take the full statement, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. It is the most glorious thing in all the world. There is nothing in all the world more glorious than being a Christian, even a suffering Christian. Yes, indeed, you see, it's easy to exhort someone like that and to encourage him with that thought. For the prospect of what awaits him is glorious. We who are Christians have been made to possess Christ himself and all his graces and the kingdom of God in all its fullness is, is promised to us, a glorious inheritance reserved in heaven for us. And while we wait for it, well, as Paul says in another place, we have a, such a hope that sustains us. Romans chapter 8, verse 23 through 25. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope... For, for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the kingdom of God and all of its fullness to be bestowed upon us. That is to say, we are waiting for our entrance into heaven. Along with all the saints who have gone before us. Well, that's the first thing they did as they returned. They strengthened the churches. They encouraged them. They were preaching to them. They were honest with him about the difficulties, but also of the glorious, the glorious hope that awaited them. But they also appointed elders. Well, does that sound at all familiar to you? I told you I would have more to say about that today. And well, this verse uh, that I just read to you is also found in our book that I read to you this morning. In all the churches, they were appointing elders. They would go back through. They would preach and strengthen them and they would appoint elders. Now, remember what I said, the goal of evangelistic enterprise is not to make converts so much as it is to make churches or establish churches. And how do you establish churches? Well, of course, you make converts first, but then you have to appoint elders. In fact, you can't have a particular 
church until you have elders. Well, how did they do that? We get a sense of it elsewhere. Uh, For instance, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, You therefore, he says, My son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You are to appoint men in every church. That's what they were doing. Uh, So also Titus chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Let us see once more in light of this, the importance of the elder. Why is the elder important? Because the church is important. And as I just said, you can't have a church unless you have elders to rule her, just as you can't have a church unless you have Christians to fill her pews. What was the purpose of the elders that they were appointed and it's, it's, it's very clear here, both from Acts chapter 14 and the two passages I read in the pastoral epistles, that they were to carry on the work which the apostles had begun, or which Timothy had begun. You are to appoint men to carry it on. We'll soon be gone. But the elders must continue to watch out for those who are under their care as overseers. Everything that I said this morning. And really that is the model that we find to this day. We don't have the apostles with us anymore. Neither did these Christians. But they had elders. And so the model is this. In the absence of apostles. Elders. Elders to rule the church. Which includes both ruling elders and ministers of the gospel. Both. Uh, by the way. In, in case that wasn't clear this morning. Both uh, of whom are elders. Or shepherds of the church. We also notice the kind of men they were. Not just what they were to do, but who they were. Luke has emphasized this kind of thing many times. Men who were godly. Men who were full of the spirit. Uh, Titus chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We see the apostle outline the kinds of men who were to be elders. Men who were exceptional to a certain degree. It was obvious to the apostles and to others that these were the men for the job, just as it was for the first deacons. Again, men who were full of the uh, full of the spirit and the faith. The next thing that I would notice is that this is not something that they did right away. They didn't rush the work. You see, when they came to the churches at first, they did not appoint elders, not on the first visit, but on the second. Now, why was this? Because these things do take time. And it's a good rule to follow. In fact, it's a rule that you'll find in our book. A man, a man cannot be ordained to the office of elder until he's been in the church for a year's time. And I think that principle is biblical based upon what we find here. And yet I would also notice at the same time that they didn't wait too long either. You see, they didn't rush things, but they also didn't uh, unnecessarily postpone them. And wait until everything was perfect and just right. This was, let us see, a necessary work. It was necessary that in every place where there were Christians, that elders be choose from among them to rule over them. Again, you couldn't have a church without elders. And so they didn't wait and wait, hoping to find perfect candidates. No, they chose from among themselves as they had done with the first deacons and so too with prayer and fasting they commended them to the lord in whom they had believed as the church had done with them in antioch 
And so let us see, I will say again once more, the goal of evangelistic enterprise is to establish churches. And then, having worked their way back to Antioch where they had begun, they completed the work which they set out to do. The first missionary journey concludes back in Antioch where we find under a third heading what I would call a missions report. Uh, The kind of thing that we love to receive here. Uh, A missionary comes to us as, as they do from time to time and he reports on the work that he had done. Only he would say something like Paul and Barnabas said, reporting on the work that God had done with and through me. And here was the great thing that God had done. Paul and Barnabas had told them. God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. This was not. This was not something they had done. In fact, at times we find the door was closed, but whenever the door was open, uh, it occurred to them that the Lord is the one who had done it. God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. It was his doing. Only he could do a work like this. Open the eyes of those who stood outside and who were blind. And yet here is what they said. Here is the amazing thing. He did it. Oh, here's the mystery. Paul would long reflect upon and glory in. That the Gentiles were made to believe along with those Jewish Christians who had at first. This is how he puts it in Colossians. I, I, I was reading a bit of that earlier, but if you were to keep reading, beginning in verse 26. And again, as I imagine, what what would he have said when he was saying God opened the door of faith to the Gentiles for us? And as he stayed with them a long time and unfolded. That to them, I imagine him saying something like this. The mystery. Well, maybe I should begin a few verses earlier. Verse 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up uh, in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in this Christ, in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor Striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Or, or uh, as he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 and following, something very similar. Well, again, I need to begin a little sooner. Verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it is as it has now been revealed by the spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace uh, 
of God given me by the effective working of his power. You see, that's what Paul was saying to those who were gathered in Antioch. He was saying, now the door has been opened. Now the mystery has been revealed. The Gentiles are fellow heirs. That's not just an idea that he preached, you see. That was the actual constitution now of the church. And they were simply glorying in it. The door was open, Paul was saying, and now we, but especially I, Paul says, now I am prepared to push through it with all of my might and energy. The first missionary journey would give way to another. Praise God, they kept going until their message filled the whole world, reaching even us. Yes, and did you ever think of your own salvation like this? Gentile sinner. That God has opened the door of faith to you. That is by the preaching of the gospel. He has granted unto you a place among those who share the inheritance of the saints. He has given you eyes to see and ears to hear. How did it happen? God has opened the door to you. But do you see? The door is not so much the door that you are walking through. That isn't what the Apostle Paul is saying. He isn't saying God has opened the door so that we might enter in. No, he's saying that he opened the door and he went out after us. Formally, uh, and, and by the way, uh, the messengers are rushing out through that door. Formally, the door was closed off, you see, and God confined himself for the most part to Israel. But now the door has been opened wide. And men like Paul are going through it and going after sinners. The door, the door of faith, that's the kind of door it is. That, that is to say, of preaching the gospel, of inviting sinners to repent and believe and be saved. Here's the thought once again. God has gone out to you. You haven't gone out to him. He has gone out to you. And that is. The apostle says is the mystery and the wonder of it all. And how can we who were saved by this grace not hear of this? We who stood on the outside and were strangers and aliens now have been made fellow heirs because God has gone out and gathered us in. How can we not hear of this mystery revealed and not along with Paul stand in utter awe and amazement and wonder? You see, when the Apostle Paul talks about these things, the door has been opened to the Gentiles. Uh, the mystery has been revealed to me. He's talking about you. He's not talking about himself. The Apostle Paul was a Jew. The mystery didn't concern him. It was revealed to him. He's talking about you and me, that we should have a place along with him in the kingdom of God. And he gloried in that, that he, a Jew, should become a light to the Gentiles. That's the mystery now revealed. And because God has revealed it through such man and opened this door, we are saved. But the last thing we see once more, and it's difficult for me not to notice these kinds of details, is that the Apostle Paul stayed a long time, or, or Paul and Barnabas, rather. I keep, I keep uh, varying my expression, but we could speak either of Paul or Paul and Barnabas. They stayed there a long time with the disciples. That's what we read in verse 28. Now, I'm always interested to read Luke saying that because even though he says it briefly, 
And he often speaks of long periods in a brief line. Nevertheless, though our impression can be in reading Acts that everything's happening all at once and very quickly, the truth is there were long periods uh, that we find men like Paul staying in particular places. And what was he doing as he stayed with these, again, do you notice they were called disciples? The church was gathered. Who were they? They were disciples. And there you have a sense of what the church is. Once again, the church is gathered disciples under the ministry of her elders. But what were they doing all that time? He stayed with them a long time. Again, we're just left to wonder. But again, I, 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 I find uh, no doubt in imagining that what he was doing is unfolding that mystery he began to speak to them of. The mystery of Christ in you. The mystery that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. The mystery that Christ should inhabit Gentiles. The mystery that he unfolds in Colossians and in Ephesians. And so I imagine he might have said something like this. What a wonderful Savior we have. What a privilege it is to know him. And to praise him and to hear of the unsearchable riches of his grace to Gentile sinners. And let me, for as long as you will allow me, unfold those unreachable uh, or unsearchable riches rather to you through the preaching. Ephesians chapter Chapter three, verse eight, to me, who am the who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what he was doing there. Or Ephesians chapter 1 verse 27. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you the hope of glory. You see that is a theme that you might be able to expound for quite a while. And that's what the apostle was doing there. He was expounding upon that. The very theme that he so gloried in and marveled in the very theme of his own apostleship. But the last thing I would say is that he worshipped Jesus because of it. You see, he didn't just glory in it and glory to preach it. But the great thing for him was the Savior whom he adored and whom he worshipped. And so we find him saying, for this reason, Ephesians chapter 3, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. You see, he praised him because of it. And as I close, I say, let us do the same. Let us praise our Savior who has saved us. Amen. And we will stand together now and sing hymn 459, hymn 459.